0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and wishing everybody a very happy start to Hanukkah. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On this last Business Roundtable podcast of the year, We're going to start with a look at another volatile week on world markets as investors worry whether central bankers can manage to cool inflation without stalling the economy and causing a recession. The Fed last week increased short-term borrowing rates by half a percent as BlackRock accused monetary leaders of deliberately trying to cause a recession and unemployment. But... Our focus is going to be on the big stories of the year from Russia's game-changing war on Ukraine that is driving higher defense spending, as well as industrial thinking in America and Europe, to inflation in the wake of lifting COVID lockdowns, even as the virus continues to kill worldwide, and supply chain problems in the wake of the pandemic that are derailing defense and commercial program execution worldwide, and to the outlook at Boeing as questions remain about the giant as senior management delays new commercial programs. And a new leader at the company's Defense Space and Security Unit works hard to get one of America's most important national security companies back on track. Driven by a more assertive China and Russia's war on Ukraine, the Pentagon begins to move at impressive speed on key munitions programs like air-breathing hypersonic weapons and develop new programs like the Modular Collaborative Combat Aircraft. Joining us today to discuss all this and more, as they do every week, as they have all year and every year, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent London Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure having you on.
1: It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you, Vago. Always a pleasure. Great to be on,
1: Vago. Thank you. Uh,
0: and thank you. And, and uh, just a reminder of the audience, we will be back in very early January. This is the last uh, business roundtable, even though we're going to have a couple of regular programs uh, going through Thursday when we will have our last Washington roundtable, uh, which will then reconvene at the end of the first week uh, of January. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage. Overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum. We're sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, guys, welcome back uh, again, Ron. Uh, start us off, as you always do, with a quick uh, take uh, on uh, the week uh, on the market and how the group fared. Uh, again, volatility, but everybody's winding down, trying to make their sheets look uh, as good as uh, they can. What were uh, the major drivers of the week and how did the group perform?
2: Relatively volatile week. I and mean, the S&P was down about 2%. Um, Boeing was up uh, the best in the group um, uh, outside of Maxar for other reasons we'll talk about. was up just under 3% uh, on the news of order activity and so on and so forth. Uh, the defense names largely outperformed the S&P. They were essentially flat on the week, up or down, just a handful of basis points. Um, the the ten year yield ended the week around three and a half percent. What kind of rattled the market was well, late in the week. The retail sales numbers came out um, actually pretty weak, and uh, that kind of raised fears again of, of of an oncoming potential recession. So there's this tension between soft landing, hard landing, soft landing, hard landing. So it's a little bit schizophrenic out there. Uh, I would say you know the probably the biggest news in the week was uh, you know, Maxar Technologies got uh, taken out by a um, uh, private equity firm, uh, Advent, uh, uh, for over 100% premium. Uh, so they were you know, up most of the week, uh, almost 120% uh, because, of, uh, because of that activity. Uh, but that's that's kind of where we, we ended up in the week. Um, as we go into this week, I'd expect things to quiet down, given that it's uh, the week before Christmas.
0: Uh, Sash, give us your sense from a uh, European perspective on on the week. Uh, what the big themes were uh, and, uh, you know, before we get into sort of a dissection of what we thought the biggest stories uh, of the year are.
3: Yeah. Well, um, look, European stocks were, you know, plus and minus. There were very, very little in, in the way of of clear direction uh, last week. Uh, most of the stocks traded within a, you know, one and a half percent spread either way. Um, and I didn't, you know, there was no real theme Civil versus defense. Uh, so, as you say, people are just trying. Uh, you know, investors are uh, uh, trying to just reduce their their own balance sheet risk, and we're not seeing particularly big positions taken uh, put put on at, at this stage. And the the themes that came out of the week we should talk about later is actually there were a lot of orders. Um, that again is a function of how a fair number of European defense ministers still behave, which is that they. They place orders at the end of the year because that gets them ready for the next calendar year, but also because that's how they use any surplus cash that they've accumulated during the year. It sounds remarkable uh, that a defence ministry that, after all, all should be planning, um, you know, certainly multi-years in advance and probably decades, should still worry about sort of clearing out cash in December. But but they do. Uh, And that made for a very, very interesting week in terms of uh, orders that were coming through for European defense companies.
0: Uh, I, I, uh, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. This sort of like use it or lose it uh, as if uh, you're either in a big bank or, you know, any other business. And, you know, well, if you don't use your money, uh, you'll get less money next year, right? Uh, which is one of the things I think the uh, PPBE, uh, commission in the United States is trying to save this sort of lose it or, you know, use it or lose it, you know, allow, you know, a little bit more reprogramming flexibility uh, as opposed to, well, you know, you didn't spend your money, uh, Sash, so that means we have to take it away and you don't need uh, as much of it uh, at the end of the day, which which is was just sort of startling. Um, Richard, uh, you know, why, why don't you start us off? Uh, on what you saw, and you know, you you can start us off with what you thought was interesting this week, story-wise, uh, before uh, launching into our broader conversation about major trends for the year. I mean, this has really been a watershed year uh, on so many uh, different fronts. That, as opposed to carefully scripting this discussion as we sometimes do, uh, it, I wanted to keep it a little bit more. Uh, freeform. form. Uh, Russia and the Ukraine war has uh, shaped uh, everything. Uh, there's been kind of a broader Titan vendor or awakening uh, across the board. Uh, the United States doing a lot more in a lot more focused fashion and, and sort of developing capabilities uh, against China. We've got the post-COVID commercial air travel surge, right? I mean, we're, it looks like we're getting close to 2019 numbers uh, now. Um, you know, take it away in any direction you, you want to take it as we go into this holiday season, even bearing in mind, you know, as, as what Richard excuse me, what Ron said at the start of the program, is that consumer spending has actually been a little bit down.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably the big theme, right? We seem to have gone from a very strong uh, RPK resurgence to perhaps uh, a little bit of concern about a plateau at exactly the right moment uh, for people to place massive orders, basically. I think a lot of airlines and uh, and financiers who love them have decided we've uh, moved to some sort of post cyclical future, uh, and they're placing orders to correspond. We already had a pretty big backlog that survived uh, the pandemic, something like twelve thousand jets. You know, just a lot of deferrals. Um, it just you know, but not a lot of cancellations by any means. And now you've got people piling on. Uh, United, of course, uh, coming out with a very nice order for seven eight sevens and seven three seven maxes. Followed by now Tata owned Air India deciding to reinvent itself, and inevitably you're going to get the kind of you know that also this week. Inevitably you're going to get the kind of you know overbooked. No, that's going to be our traffic. No, that's going to be our traffic. Yeah, there'll never be a cyclical downturn. You know that sort of thing. I, I don't think we're at risk of a a bubble. I just think there might be a little bit of um, you know <laughs> irrational exuberance. On the positive side, um, and this of course was perhaps the very biggest theme of last year, other than the, uh, the Ukraine invasion and uh, and the corresponding rise in defense spending, but. On the positive side, there might be a kind of terrified, enforced discipline that comes from supply chain constraints that basically keep us from going absolutely crazy. You know, the big winner in the great jetliner market share war is clearly Airbus. And obviously, at the end of the year and going into next year, they're stumbling because of those supply chain constraints. And Boeing, we have no idea what's going on, but every expectation for a ramp up has been dash by one thing or another, mostly labor availability, but certainly other factors too. Um, so in other words, we're going to see an awful lot of order activity as we did this week. It's not going to mean a whole heck of a lot because of the supply chain constraints, but perhaps that's for the best because it's going to keep us from getting irrationally exuberant with uh, monster high production rates, and maybe we'll have a nice sustained increase through the middle of the decade.
0: Um, that's my, my big hope coming into the year. Uh, Christmas wishes, Christmas wishes, uh, Indeed. or holiday wishes, we should say, uh, as, as, uh, Hanukkah gets started. Uh, Ron, uh, what were the big stories and, and Sash, uh, you know, we'll go to you next, uh, on what you guys thought were sort of the major, uh, storylines, right? I mean, uh, Richard is also, you're tugging a little bit on, uh, Boeing's challenges uh, and whether or not this is actually a lifeline to Boeing uh, ultimately and, and helps the company out at a time when its commercial aviation business as well as its defense business has been struggling. On the one hand, uh, without blowing any unnecessary sunshine at Ted Colbert, uh, it looks like he's working very hard to methodically address the challenges that Boeing defense, space and security are facing it's not as clear whether the uh, commercial aviation side of the business as well as the senior management of the company uh, is as focused. And, and uh, Richard, you wrote a great piece in Ave Week uh, about whether it might actually be in a sense too late and, and we've passed a watershed uh, year on that. Um, actually, you know, do you want to comment briefly on, on the Boeing storyline before we go to uh, Ron and Sash?
1: Yeah, with pleasure. Um, It might be viewed, the orders might be viewed as a lifeline. They could also be viewed as something of an enabler of dysfunctional behavior. Because frankly, the message that came clearly out of Boeing top management this year, and again, kudos to uh, Ted Colbert for trying to transform things at BDS. Uh, Why it took this long, bit of a baffler, but here we are and he's doing his best and we should encourage that. The message from top management is uh, nothing will change. There are no cultural issues. you know, people who ask tough questions in the equities community uh, looking at you, Ron, great job on that, um, are to be ignored because uh, that doesn't matter. Those are long term concerns, and we're not concerned about the long term. Instead, we're going to fulfill everybody's expectations that 737 max and 787 production will be converted into cash flow, which will be converted into shareholder rewards. That's the strategy, that's the end goal. after a couple of years, we might think about simply dismantling this company because of this uh, complete failure to look at the long term. But that's the message. And of course, when you get big orders, it just means, oh, good, that's cash flow, rather than, oh, good, an opportunity to reinvent themselves and to uh, restore their their dilapidated engineering base. Now, in addition to the implications for the duopoly moving to a two-thirds one-third or worse situation there are the national security concerns and thanks i I did write about that for aviation week and there you've got the short-term concern of you know look there are a lot of aging platforms that have to stay in service because Boeing platforms whether it's KC-135 or T-7 or Air Force One are all delayed 2nd midterm concerns is Boeing considered is Boeing a competitor anymore uh the latest data point being Flora, you know that didn't that didn't happen because of Boeing, but I'm sure Boeing's position there didn't help. You know, does the does um, the Pentagon consider them a valid competitor for important new programs like NGAD and whatever else? It, that that could be a major issue. And then finally, are they going to be able to design the next generation strategic military airlifter? Because no one else in this country can, and yet. And it's quite possible that when this program begins in a few years, they won't have the necessary design base either. And if, you know, obviously the pivot to the Pacific plus the much faster than expected wearing out of the C-17 fleet means that this program is looming large as a significant opportunity. So what happens? Does Airbus get in? Does Lockheed Martin decide to revive its military transport capabilities? Is there someone else? Or does Boeing magically come back as somebody who can design a large aircraft? Because right now, that's that's kind of uncertain.
0: Um, I I don't know what about the C seventeen where operate was a surprise to anybody. Anybody who is looking at utilization rates would have told you that. Um, I think Lockheed is. Uh, a company that could develop uh, the airplane. I mean, the company did the C5M uh, modernization. And and to th- you know, and without being uh, discharitable, as I have an enormous amount of respect, as everybody knows, for Lockheed Martin, the, I mean, it, it was the compound coaxial design was really a Sikorsky design, right? I, I'm not necessarily sure the victory uh, or nor the loss of this can necessarily be hung on Boeing's uh, door uh, on it. I mean, ultimately... You know, Sikorsky went whole hog, just like Bell many years ago, went whole hog into the tilt rotor. They went whole hog into the compound coaxial. And, and we'll see, you know, when the debriefs are done and, you know, whether there's a, a protest phase to see whether or not there's any, um, you know, in anything we learn from that uh, past performance wise or technological or or, or otherwise. That's um, very
1: true. But I would point out that there's no way that it didn't add an element of past performance risk to the evaluation, even though you're exactly right about CoX
0: being the deciding factor. I should say so, right? I mean, almost everything the pro- the company has touched has not necessarily gone well, whether it's T7, whether it's uh, KC46, Air Force One, as you mentioned. Uh, as, so you know, ultimately, yes, you know, questions asked. R- Ron, you've been very patient and satch. So have you uh, lead us off on what do you think some of the major storylines of the year were? Uh, and, and the things you think will be most consequential uh, going into the new year, even though when we do our new year show, we have a tendency of looking forward on it. But what were sort of the big stories or even the little stories that you think had big impact that folks were not paying uh, as much attention to, right? I mean, SPACs, we've heard a lot about SPACs, FTX's collapse, uh, it looks like there were uh, investors who were so tied, you know, tied so heavily into, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole, you know, Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrency uh, markets that there was an impact and there was a casualty in the form of improbable defense in the United States. Uh, right. I mean, if, if one company was impacted, it's likely other companies uh, in this early stage investment uh, phase uh, might have been impacted as 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 well, but more broadly, Ron. Right, I mean, what were sort of the interesting uh, themes and trends for the year from your perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you if you pull back the aperture and you look um, and just kind of look over the last couple of years, you go back to 2021. <clears throat> it really was the year of the biz jet, and that was reflected in stock performance that year. The top performing names um, were manufacturers of business jets. This year, it's really the year of defense, uh, and ultimately, year-to-date, the S&P is down about 19 percent. Boeing's down uh, a little over 8 percent. Northrop Grumman's up almost 37 uh, percent. Lockheed Martin's up almost 36 percent. And Parsons, who uh, is uh, you know they do defense services and some some other things in uh, engineering and construction, it's up almost 38 percent. Raytheon Technologies is up. Uh, about 14%. So if you look at how the, the defense piece of my group performed this year, it handily outperformed the market, right? mean, just, you know, down, roughly down 20 and up 40, and that's a humongous margin of performance over the market. So the real question ultimately becomes next year, um, you know, is that sustainable again? And I think that's a, a tension and a question in investors' minds today is, is next year the year of commercial or not? Um, if there's a recession, what's that mean? Uh, you know, I was just out West um, in one of the ski towns and, you know, the local papers already reporting that, you know, Christmas numbers in the hotels are softer than they expected. So, you know, is, is the consumer, you know, more broadly getting hit? And that was what, you know, was some of the fears of the sell off in the market uh, late in the week this week. Um, you know, when you look at the defense, the, the Senate version of the NDAA uh, they agreed with the house and they're putting procurement up. What was it? 13, 14% in, yeah, in 40,
0: $45 billion overall plus up uh on the uh budget, right? To 858 yeah, yeah. billion, which is a nice amount of money. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big,
2: big money going into next year. And then you look on top of it, all the, the order. I mean, you've just been following the contracts coming out of the Pentagon and you're really starting to see the the uh, the stocks of, of various weapons that got sent to the Ukraine starting to get refilled in, 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 and, and those orders flowing through. So it looks like from a book to bill perspective, next year could be really robust for defense. So, um, you know, it's still the it, it's still unclear exactly which direction things are going to go next year. But I mean, but ultimately, I mean, a couple of comments, it does seem like next year could be a good year. For the commercial aerospace aftermarket, because you're going to have more airplanes flying around that are older, and those older airplanes are going to require parts, and those older airplanes aren't going to be parted out, and a lot of that has to do with you know the, the constraints on Boeing and Airbus among other things. Um, so you know the the aero aftermarket folks seem like it's a pretty good setup into next year. Um, the fundamentals underlying defense look really good. Uh, just the real question among investors is you know can you be up almost forty percent one year and then follow that with another year up? So we'll see. Um, and then and then ultimately it's you know what what happens at boeing do they execute you know do they they put out this this number of 10 billion dollars of free cash flow out in this 25 26 time frame and from an investor perspective can they get there and if they do get there and they don't do a new airplane what's that mean for the long run and you know a lot of the topics that that Richard brought up so uh, i think next year is going to be you know uh, just as interesting as this year just maybe tweaked a little bit along some different vectors
0: and on the boeing storyline what you know you've followed that closely and and richard sort of uh noted you and I, I somewhat misstated i apologize richard what the vector of your discussion was even though you raised that point uh in the contours of this uh piece uh, as well as you have in in past uh articles um what do, what do you think were the most sort of important milestones from a boeing perspective this year Ron, well, i mean having i mean followed I think, it closely
2: yeah i mean i think hands down from my perspective is uh management's statement that they're not going to do a new airplane anytime soon that we probably won't see a new airplane until sometime, um, I guess at best early next decade or until after the current management team, um, rides off into the sunset. Um, it, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's tectonic, right? Because that sets all kinds of things in motion across the industry. Uh, so I think that that's probably the single biggest piece. And then, you know, behind that are, you know, the, the 737 starting deliveries again, the 787 starting deliveries again, all the various supply chain issues, labor issues, so on and so forth. But I think the single, single biggest thing that, you know, Boeing did, you know, put forth this year, at least in, on the commercial side was, hey, we're not gonna do a new airplane until sometime in the 2030s. Um, and then on the defense side, just sort of across the board, you know, it, 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 it's really kind of remarkable. If you look at the last quarter that they they printed, uh, and you take out all the charges and you look at the margins in the defense business before r and d they were still pretty anemic I mean they were low single digit um and and if you compare that to how Lockheed North or Bratheon just pick your pick your prime um how they're doing um you know Boeing's really far behind. and uh you know the the job that you know Boeing defense new management that Ted Colbert has to do I mean it's Colbert has to do is it's easy. they gave him a, a really difficult, you know, deck of cards to deal with uh, a difficult hand. Um, so, you know, uh, and let's see, I mean, he, he seems like a very capable uh, individual, but it's going to be a lot of work to get that back to on par with peers
0: um, from where it is today. Uh, in Indeed. Uh, Sash, uh, your sort of sense on, on all of this uh, as You know, what what were the things that jumped out at you, both from a European perspective, but also even from an American or a global perspective?
3: I'll just pick up, first of all, on Ron's
0: comments there and and Richard's
3: on Boeing. I think the big mistake that Boeing management makes is to think that it is their choice as to when they launch an aircraft. Ultimately, you know, other players have a say as well, um, of whom the most important are actually governments, airlines, pretty close second. But if governments decide that either issues of emissions or issues of, um, uh, you know, safety uh, are going to are going to apply, they will, um, uh, you know, they will enforce those uh, pretty arbitrarily, and OEMs will have to do something. So on that basis, I was, um, you know, my view would be that it's not Boeing's call as to whether they can, you know, avoid launching new aircraft this decade. They have to be prepared to launch an aircraft this decade because at some stage, governments may do something that we might think is stupid, but they decide they have a, a public mandate for. And, you know, we were discussing for the uh, recording the degree to which the French government is sort of mandating that you can't use a biz jet or indeed you can't fly um, domestic routes within where there's a two and a half hour train journey uh, that can be done instead. Stupid, possibly, arbitrary. Yeah, you bet. Does it change the um, that portion of the industry? Definitely. Um, and I think you know, if, if we get governments that say emissions are going to matter, we are going to require something better than um, uh, sustainable aviation fuels as the means for aviation to get to net zero. Um, that will force Boeing and Airbus to launch new aircraft, and the aero engine companies to launch new aircraft. Boeing hasn't got the money to do it, Airbus does.
0: It's interesting you mentioned uh, the two and a half hour, um, you know, I mean, in, in many cases, actually, if you add it up, a two and a half hour train journey is, is probably smarter than an hour long plane flight, right? I mean, it takes you time to get to the airport. You got to get to the airport an hour sooner. Airports tend to be farther out of town uh, than train stations uh, tend to be right, which is the reason why the Northeast Corridor is so popular. Uh, you can get on a high-speed train and it'll get you to Washington uh, in less time than it's going to take you to get to the airport, fly the airplane, and then get back into the airport, uh, ultimately, and especially with delays. Uh, yeah, and, and,
3: and also, Vargo, look, look look at the impact the Eurostar uh, train has had on the London to Paris route. Traffic has just moved massively
0: from air to train. Uh, th- that's right, and and that's the way that I've always gotten between Paris and uh, London. To be honest, is is the Eurostar, or even uh, getting uh, to Brussels, or 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 taking the Thalys uh, from Paris uh, to Brussels is um, a, a better and easier route. I think more problematic is the stupid EU decision to allow people to talk on flights. Uh, right? I mean, I think we're all in agreement about how stupid we think that is. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, oof, God, uh, that just fills you with nothing but dread. Um, Let me uh, ask uh, you, Sash, right? I mean, one of the big stories coming out of uh, 2020 certainly was the AUKUS uh, agreement between, uh, or among uh, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Uh, It has become uh, an agreement on broader technology uh, technology sharing, uh, quantum, artificial uh, intelligence, cyber. I mean, a number of agreements that have come from that uh, that fall short of the goal of delivering nuclear-powered attack submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. now it sounds like, uh, and if you listen to Australian leaders and leaders in Asia, and even folks in Washington, uh, they make clear that they feel that there's a role for Japan uh, in satisfying that agreement, uh, in, in part because Japan has a submarine industrial base uh, that can uh, potentially deliver capability. And now increasingly, you know, saying, hey, look, the French... Have to be part of this as well at some level, even though this agreement was born of the rupture uh, between Australia and France over uh, conventional uh, the conventional attack uh, submarine program that the French were leading for the Australians. What what happens to AUKUS and particularly the UK side of this equation? The UK submarine industrial base is flat out uh, delivering on the dreadnought program. The you know there's hopes in the United States that obviously there will be a surge. Uh, of of capability on that, but as people talk about Japan without looking too far into next year's uh, next year storyline, where does that put the UK in this? If if all of a sudden the Japanese are part of it, and then folks are talking about the French also being part of it, um, you know what what does that do to AUKUS, and what does this do to what a, you know the nuclear submarine element of this agreement from your perspective?
3: I think the more countries you bring in the slower the slower the process is if you're bringing countries in because you want defense relations with them that's good but you know uh there's already the quad um which does a very very good job of uh tying together countries in um uh, or the u.s and countries in uh asia um submarines if, if the australians wanted a japanese submarine they would have ordered one they were offered Japanese submarines. Right. They chose chose to buy the French submarines. Then they decided the French submarines were not suitable for them. So I, you know, I, I sort of watched this with a degree degree of despair. Ultimately, it's the Australian's choice. But if they want to do that, and if and effectively they will have no submarines in the 2030s, that's what it comes down to. And the impact on the UK and US is secondary to the impact on Australia if they lose their their entire underwater capability because you cannot keep the Collins class going forever. Um, uh, yeah, you know, of course you want to bring the the french and the oh sorry the japanese and the french into into something because uh they are both powers which have different capabilities uh that australia would find very very valuable militarily um is AUKUS the way to do it somehow i doubt it but it's it's the australians call in my view you know if that's the one to do crack on
0: uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, it's, it's up to them. Although, uh, right, I mean, the, there are those in the United States that want to build up American industrial capacity so that we could build a Virginia for the Australians. Uh, but again, this starts to get beyond the window of relevance as Indo-Pacific leaders have said, we're in uh, the most dangerous phase. Uh, and indeed, right, I mean, the last Indo-Pacific commander was saying the same thing. Richard, let me let me go to you about whether or not we're actually seeing the kind of acceleration on programs that seems to be what we're seeing. Um, you know, the number of uh, uh, awards that have been made, obviously an important award to Raytheon, an important award recently to Dynetics, Alidos, uh, uh, company on hypersonic weapons. Um, you know, we heard uh, from Dr. Caitlin Lee of the Mitchell Institute uh, for Aerospace uh, Studies last week, uh, talking about how she thinks the Air Force is moving really remarkably quickly on the collaborative combat aircraft, uh, and and doing so methodically was her point. Right, there is was no wasted effort. It's a very focused. Can we deliver and develop a long-range autonomous airplane that can be modular, can do electronic warfare, can do strike, can do. Uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance in the western Pacific uh, to augment force structure. From your cap- standpoint, is there a sense that things are moving quickly as a long time? Uh, observer and Ron, I want to put this question to you whether or not 2022 in a lot of years was a watershed year in folks sort of getting um, you know sort of absorbing the threat and then moving quickly uh, on, on, on delivering the capabilities we need against it.
1: Yeah, you know, it sure seems that things have been uh, accelerating and, you know, for many years, of course, or quite a while, it looked like we were stuck at about $100 billion a year in rdt and e and the Pentagon budget, and now we're at about $140. Uh, that alone is indicative. Um, I think also for a lot of people, the progress on the B-21 program is kind of inspiring. Like, you know, wow, this appears to be a high-tech, well-run, ambitious new program that Seems to be coloring within the lines, and, and good for them. Uh, collaborative combat aircraft, I think, is, is is a fascinating example, though, of are we dependent upon forces that are well beyond our control? Because I, I agree completely with Dr. Lee. We seem to be moving pretty darn quick. Even more impressive, other nations are too. Uh, obviously, with Ghost Bat in Australia. And uh, other folks looking at the idea, but ultimately it, it depends upon a degree of uh, artificial intelligence that will determine uh, air vehicle size, air vehicle uh, configuration, uh, obviously operational doctrine, whatever else. I, I can't help but wonder whether or not we're moving on that uh, without complete, um, you know, planning for what is what is allowable. Because at the end of the day, you know, most fighter planes or or combat aircraft sort are going to have single crew. And we don't know what they're going to be able to control. We don't know how they're going to interact. There's so much that depends upon AI emerging as a capability that's, again, outside of the Pentagon's hands or anyone's hands in in the defense industry. But in general, we appear to be moving pretty quickly. I mean, hypersonics are another area that's kind of fascinating. Um, You know, I think I've made a bit of a career in the last decade (laughs) poo-pooing. hypersonics is, you know, anything viable and everyone said, oh yeah, like lighting a match in again hurricane, good luck with that. We appear to have made some really solid progress there. And even though we're suddenly aware that, hey, this is indeed an expensive, exquisite strike capability, or do we really want to deploy it in these kinds of numbers? Nevertheless, from a technical maturation standpoint, things seem to be accelerating. You know, ditto for far, for that matter. Um, I, I didn't think the money or the wherewithal or whatever would be there. It is now. And it appears to be moving in a pretty well-run way, so I think across the board, the answer to your question is, yeah. Um, I guess there's, as always in human history, there's nothing like the threat of conflict to uh, galvanize scientific progress. Uh,
0: yes, sir, that's right. It sharpens the attention. Uh, if to put it as we as we have an understated Brit on this program, um, uh, Ron, from your perspective, do you do you see anything? Do you see evidence on, as an engineer and an aerodynamicist um, on, on how things are, are moving and sort of the, the bigger story you're seeing from some of these smaller contract awards and the pace at which they're being awarded? Um,
2: yeah, I mean, we've, we've definitely seen a pickup in volume, like I mentioned earlier. I mean, it just, you know, uh, and, and, and I think part of it is the optics of things did slow down during the COVID period. I mean, are they more intense in COVID period? I'm not saying that the COVID period is over, but you know the real intense period. Um, so I think there's a combination of that, but yeah, you, you're, you're definitely seeing uh, a push in, in in different technologies. But ultimately, right, necessity is the mother of invention, and it, I think there's uh, pretty much agreement across the aisle that the time has come uh, to start really pursuing this stuff. And uh, um, there does seem to be a reasonable level of progress being made, for sure.
0: So- uh, Sash, you know, you you started this off with order activity, but on a more granular level, is there um, sort of a, a real shift from your standpoint in how people are are thinking, or are folks already, you know, I mean, the concern in Washington is that uh, which uh, the Ukrainian leadership did a terrific. Uh, Or I should say The Economist did a terrific series of uh, interviews and were given access, the likes of which I think few others had on the record uh, by the Ukrainian side, talking about actually how tenuous their position is and how the Russians are building uh, capability at a time when everybody's sort of patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, you know, the Ukrainians did a terrific job. We should be talking about peace uh, and settlements and what have you, and and the Ukrainians were saying, actually, guys, we're we're just not there yet. We're actually getting into a more dangerous phase uh, here. From your standpoint, Sash, I mean, you know, we've seen the uh, Japan joining the Tempest program. Uh, obviously, Ryan Metal doing some deals, but do you do you get the sense that things have structurally and permanently changed, or you know, come around March, or depending on how things go in Ukraine, by midpoint next year, folks will be saying, you know it's time to dial back, let's not get too extreme, let's not start putting orders that we might not need, right? I mean, because that's certainly been, you know, some people in Washington have been saying, hey, 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 let's let's not send as many troops to Europe, uh, because, uh, you know, we could be rounding the bend uh, on, on Ukraine. You know, how permanent is this transformation, whether on a Russia side or on a, a China side from a European perspective?
3: First point, China is a, is a, a, a a very, very minor issue for Europeans. We talk about China a lot because it keeps you Americans happy, but it doesn't matter as much to Europeans. Uh, painful truth. Um, it's not a military pacing threat for any European nation. Uh, it's a diplomatic threat, and it is clearly a um, a threat at state level, but that's different. Russia is a military threat. Uh, and the further north and the further east you go in Europe, the more direct the Russian threat is. Um, And paradoxically, if the U.S. sends fewer troops to Europe, that raises the threat level for Europeans, and they probably have to do something about it. Uh, It's not that I would necessarily encourage the U.S. to send fewer troops to Europe, but I mean, it's always been one of the concerns of uh, Europeans since the um, you know the last year of uh, President Trump's uh, administration that the U.S. might withdraw from uh, defending Europe altogether, and we'd have to do something about it. We didn't, as Europeans, take it totally seriously then, I think come up to the next election and that will be much more important. And I think coupled with such clear evidence of Russian aggression, what is permanent uh, is that Europe now gets it, that, that we have to spend on our own defence. It still means that we, we, European nations, I'm speaking on behalf of a huge number of nations that I shouldn't do, may not do enough fast enough. Um, And if that means that Ukraine is left short of ammunition and short of vehicles and so forth, that's going to be very, very um, shameful and embarrassing. But it's 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 not an outside possibility. But what I was really interested in this week, uh, you know, it's just really dialed to the back to the sort of granular level this week. Yes, there was a degree of sort of year end window dressing going on or, you know, use it or lose it. But I have counted about somewhere between eight and ten billion dollars of orders placed by European countries. Uh, this week for defence equipment. Uh, and that is very, you know, that's a lot by the standards of European countries uh, a week and a half before Christmas. So, I mean, just to, you know, run through some of them. You know, Saab had one of its strong I may have had its strongest quarter in the last three or four years. Um, orders for grip and maintenance, upgrades, a big order for end missiles from the UK, um, uh, and a pair of uh, signals intelligence ships for uh, Poland. A big collaborative order from BA uh, for BA Systems for the uh, BBS ten articulated um, uh, armored vehicle. Slovakia ordered a billion four of uh, CV ninety vehicles, um, uh, and uh, the the SCAF FCAST program, the Franco German uh, Spanish program. Finally, you know, after what feels like many years, actually the the Phase One B was launched. That was three point two billion dollars. Um, so you know. This is there's a degree of momentum just in the last week that I'm I'm really pretty positive about um, that one very amusing little uh, order which I, I want to bring up. Rheinmetall orders an order for ten thousand hundred and fifty five millimeter artillery shells. Very coy about who the customer is. They just said, you know, a European customer. Ten thousand shells. Well, what's that? You know, that's that actually is <clears throat> enough shells for 50 guns for a day or firing in defense. Not very much. On the other hand, by the standards of some of the stocks held by European nations, that's a lot of shells. So, you know, it's good. But the thing that really amused me is that the Robinson Press release refers to the shells by their designation. And the designation is L-15. Well, L-15 are the shells used by the Royal Artillery. It's actually the shells that were originally designed by uh, BA Systems Royal Ordnance. So there you have the UK placing its first order for artillery shells. We've given thousands to ukraine we're now starting the backfilling um and where the uk goes uh germany france norway netherlands italy spain will be going in the coming quarters i i take that very very positively but i'm very amused that the uk was too embarrassed to actually admit it
0: um and is there any upsurge in um uh you know you were talking about how many rounds right i mean when people talk about you know artillery rounds world war one it was, you know, tens of millions of artillery rounds uh, were consumed. So it just gives you a sense for the magnitude and the scale at which even dumb artillery will be fired uh, once uh, the, and mortar shells once uh, 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 the shooting starts um, and, and the, the dire need to replenish magazines that have been running uh, low. Um, is there any activity also in the Washington, BAE's uh, Washington? Uh, facility as well, right? Which is sort of the focal point for UK artillery and mortar shell manufacture.
3: Well, there's uh, or it's the focal point for BA's um, artillery and mortar shell um, uh, manufacturing in the UK. Look, they're not. Nobody's saying anything yet. I think that's why Rand Matar was so coy about this order. They announced this week. They didn't actually say who the customer were. We can work it out by the by the designation, but they didn't say who it who it is. Um, UK could well be ordering stuff from BA, and they were. You know, no one will tell us about it until. You know, several months later, that's fine. You know, that's that that that's what we don't have a right to know. It's just very interesting when they do announce it. Um, I, I would take issue, though, with um, I think uh, analogies with World War One. We've got to be a bit careful. World War One, in general, artillery pieces were smaller than they are now. Standard artillery piece was uh, for Germany, seventy-seven millimeters. For France, seventy-five millimeters. Right. For the uh, for Britain, eighteen pounders. Artillery shells are. Um, You know, the standard now is 155 millimeter, which is a 55 pound shell. You know, these are huge things Um, and they are a hell of a lot more accurate. So I I think usage rates in First World War are are misleading and the numbers are misleading. Uh, What is, I would go back to the fact that during the Cold War, NATO had a series of planning assumptions for how much in the way of artillery we would need, how many shells we would need to fire every single day per gun, depending on whether we're in attack defense or something in between. And in attack, you fire about 100 to 150 shells a day per gun, in defense, 150 to 200 shells a day. And there are planning tables which are in every nation's staff officer's handbook that that say, if you're gonna to go to war with 155, this is what you carry. This is what you need to have in your, your uh, ammo dumps. Um, Nobody's paid any attention to that for 30 years. But actually, the Ukrainians are using exactly that number of shells every day with their 155, 152 millimeter guns, which shows that our planning in the Cold War was really very good. It's just for political reasons, money reasons and everything else, everybody
0: ignored it for 25 years. Painful lessons coming home to roost. Right, My World War I analogy uh, point was just about volume, right? Um, and the Ukrainians make that point as well um in in terms of you know and and you've made this point uh, uh sash as well right as a from a gunners perspective you you consume a lot more uh, rounds than you think you'll be consuming when uh, no, no, fo- no no
3: but- no no, you we're consuming exactly the number of rounds of the ukrainians are that we thought we would consume in the Cold War, the problem is that we forgot that lesson and paid no attention to it. Twenty-five years, they're using two hundred rounds a day. That's absolutely the number of rounds the Ukrainians are using in their one It's a prodigious number, but it's what we knew we would use. We just right. paid, we, we chose to ignore that.
0: I should have put it. Uh, I should have put it that way. But what I'm what I'm saying is, wh- wh- a lot of these lessons actually exist, and as uh, the, you know, the the U.S. military is fond of saying, some of these have been uh, earned through blood. Uh, right. And we have a tendency of actually forgetting some of these lessons because it's financially or otherwise convenient uh, to uh, do so, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and just, me-
3: just one final point. I think we drew some very, very false lessons from both the uh, the first Gulf War and the Iraq war, because, of course, we had air supremacy and air supremacy gave us cheap wars and cheap victories. Um, there's no air supremacy in Ukraine, and hence artillery has to has to do
0: the fighting. Of course, then again, if we made and gave the Ukrainians the right kind of tools, uh, they too would be able to achieve a degree of air supremacy, uh, whether through uh, better air and missile defenses, which looks like the administration is going to do through Patriot, uh, but as well as actually combat aircraft uh, that uh, they could put to very good use. And had we been quietly training them at Luke and other bases, uh, it would be much easier for them to uh, accept that and, and to do it quickly. We've got um, a little bit of time uh, left, and, and uh, I want to get to uh, the merger and acquisition outlook, especially uh, you know, last year in the, in the wake of uh, the administration's decision to deny uh, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, and obviously a tighter m environment, and then the SPAC uh, collapse, uh, as well as the you know sort of a little bit on what that means for EV tall. There, there you go, uh, Richard. You can do a little bit of festivus here uh, as we head into the holidays. Uh, Ron, talk to us a little bit about you know. Uh, Sasha has been talking about that needle moving in Europe in terms of armament uh, replenishment, and there have been some concerns and criticism, uh, you know, here that that armaments needle is not moving more quickly. This new budget. Uh, that the senate has approved has a lot of munitions and a lot of long-range precision and a lot of uh expendables uh investment in it has the 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 munitions needle been moving you know what's what's your perspective from order uh you know from orders right because the the pentagon has said wherever possible we're trying to use existing contracts so when people say there are no new contracts that's not necessarily true we are awarding contracts from your perspective is that Needle really been moving this year, yeah, um, ab- to replenish stocks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've been seeing orders for, you know, MLRS, Stingers, you name it, um, uh, and it's been accelerating as we've gone through the year. Um, that's one of the things we track, and we track everything that's kind of been going, you know, coming out of the U.S. arsenal into the Ukraine and then uh, inventories into the Ukraine and then um, what's been going on with replenishment. And we've definitely seen that accelerate, particularly in the fourth quarter. Um, and I would expect that to continue in the next year. Yeah. So for, for sure, we're seeing that um, uh, in, in the US.
0: And uh, really quickly, Ron, your sense on MA and and then Richard, uh, you get to end it on a positive uh, Hanukkah, Christmas, Festivus, Kwanzaa note on uh, eVTOL and how uh, verdantly that market has has grown. And SPACs, too, uh, two uh, favorite topics of Euros. Go ahead, Ron, on M&A.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, I can uh, talk to a couple of points there. I mean, M&A this year was broadly, I think, kind of slower, uh, largely because of um, the, 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 the transaction that didn't happen uh, between Lockheed and uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, although um, I might add, Aerojet Rocketdyne has been in the press of, as of late um, about you know some speculation there, uh, you know, as L3 Harris is a potential suitor or GE or Textron or whoever else. But so that that one's still kind of in play, it seems at least that's what's been going on in the press. Uh, and 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 then kind of more broadly, probably the the, the biggest news was uh, Maxar getting taken out by private equity. That was I think a, a big surprise, uh, and then. Um, you know, M&A that didn't really play out so well, at least at first, was uh, you know, CAE purchased a services business from L3 Harris, and that sort of um, uh, flopped on them, and they're digging themselves out of that. Um, L3 Harris was active; uh, they bought from Viessat their Link 16 business. I think that was viewed as a as a favorable transaction. So there was M&A going on, you know, kind of on the side, but. Uh, I, I think the view has been, you know, large transactions in, in, under the current administration probably won't happen. Um, so I think MA bankers have sort of hung their cleats up on the wall, if you will. Uh, on, on the SPAC side, it's been, I mean, you know, you, you say what you will about SPACs, but SPACs bring to the market early stage companies with all the risks that come with early stage companies. Uh, and, you know, some of these companies have you know real potential, some don't. Um, we cover uh, a number of them, particularly in the space arena. And, you know, sadly, they've all been sort of grouped together and uh, have performed pretty similarly. But, you know, some of the companies are, are, you know, real companies. Rocket Lab, for example, is one of the companies that we cover that's had a, a, a more tough year from a stock uh, performance perspective. But uh, I would, you know, you know, call them, you know, as real as they get. I mean, they're, they're kind of like SpaceX's um, uh, little sister. They're, they have an active launch portfolio, an active portfolio of, of products that they sell into, Uh, the the commercial space market. Um, So uh, it's, you know, but but anything that was sort of painted with the SPAC paintbrush um, has been um, traded pretty poorly this year.
0: And I uh, apologize. I uh, thought uh, that, Air Jet Rocket, that the administration had sued to block it um, last, uh, in 21, it was actually January 22, right? Is my memory correct on that?
3: Yep, that's
2: right.
0: Yep. Okay, great. Um, because I thought I was uh, losing my marbles. Richard, bring us bring us home for the year on whatever uh, else you've got on your mind, but also, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about SPACs and eVTOL, right? Special purpose acquisition companies do have a role in a place, uh, but it, it was you know the combination that would often accompany eVTOL and and you've been somewhat less enamored with the eVTOL market.
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, it absolutely specs of a place as, as Ron pointed out. But what went on over the past couple of years completely dwarfed by by a factor of like a thousand anything that came before it, largely in aid of pursuing uh, advanced air mobility, uh, air, urban air mobility, EV tolls, you know, various subsets of one or the other. It's it's, it's so many. Um, what is fascinating to me is watching the parallel sort of out of the corner of my my eye um, with NFTs you know, and and of course everything, Bitcoin, you know, I, FinTech in general, um, I, watching it all kind of fall apart, um, whether it's blockchain or whatever, it, it just looks like this. It always looked ludicrous to me, but I didn't want to ever say I knew anything about these topics. It just seemed like something that fell under the heading of ridiculous bubbles aided by way too much money. And of course, way too cheap cash. I, And now it appears to be unraveling very badly and predictably, leaving a lot of people unhappy and disappointed. It looks like the stage is being set for exactly the same thing with all the cash that's plowed into EV tolls and whatever else, like throwing billions of dollars at, quote, pre-revenue, unquote companies with highly speculative technologies and completely unproven markets oh my dear god and then of course there were parts of it like for example boom supersonic that just looked like more like performance art than an actual business plan it was just kind of bizarre hey
0: wait a minute uh, they say they have an engine now
1: yes yes they do so do i it's uh, called an, an rocket engine i think it's more viable than anything that they've outlined over the last week so um i You know, I will, um, I'll end with hopes for the year two positive notes, uh, because it's important to end on a positive note. Um, First of all, I hope something survives of this, because even though there was an awful lot of dreck, an awful lot of stupidity, there were also some pretty cool new ideas that came out there that were funded by specs or whatever. And, and I hope the good ones survive and the bad ones get smited. That's uh, smitten, whatever the word is. Smote, smote. Oh, smote. smote. Thank you, smote. You know, I, I just hope that there is, there isn't too much collateral damage because there has been some interesting experimentation in uh, advanced air mobility. The, the whole thing shouldn't go out. And second of all, um, big upside. You know, we're short of engineers in this business. It's been a real challenge, people. And how many people who had great experience in engineering went to work for these overfunded and somewhat ludicrous organizations? More than a few. (laughs) It would be great if, as these things employed, they, you know, went back to work in the traditional part of the industry, helping solve complicated A&D problems that, uh, you know, frankly, need experienced talent. Uh, so, frankly, I, I ho- and I hope this is true for many other sectors of the economy. It's a tight labor market. If overfunded speculative ventures, be it cryptocurrency or be it EV tolls, implode and those people get jobs with uh, legitimate organizations that have far better futures ahead, you know, I think in aggregate the the world will benefit.
0: Ron, any last thought? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. A, I do agree with the point. It's
2: uh, an exciting time to be an engineer, and being an engineer uh, that makes me happy. Right? Um, you <laughs> know, when I when I got out of school, you, there was not a lot of places you could go if you wanted to um, work on, you know, the future of flight. And there's a lot of different things you can do today. I do believe, however, um, eVTOL will find its place. Um, it's probably not how it's currently envisioned but we are seeing the birth of a new technology and it'll, it'll find its home and it's probably smaller than people imagine and so on and so forth in terms of the ultimate end market size. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, you know, that's, that, that's where I fought on that one. And, you know, I'm hoping next year we go into a year with, with a soft landing and, you know, air traffic continues to go the right direction. China continues to open um, and uh, all the various, Um, pandemics and viruses and everything else that's floating around the world today, um, you know, behave themselves and we can kind of get back to the, the cadence that we're more familiar with from a couple of years ago.
0: From your mouth to god's ears as the saying goes uh ron uh in the meantime thanks very much uh to uh you three for joining us every single week uh this uh year it's an absolute honor and pleasure uh working uh with you all uh you know any any job is the best job you can have if you work with people uh who you respect but also consider uh good and dear friends thank you very very much guys i hope you have very happy holidays very merry christmas uh, and a very happy new year, and looking forward to restarting the collaboration in early January. Thanks very much, and all the best to you and yours.
2: Uh, thanks, Vago. Always uh, always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, happy Christmas and
3: happy new year.
0: Yeah, thanks, Al-Gay. Uh Always a pleasure, and ha- happy Christmas, happy new year to everyone.
1: Absolutely, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, and, of course, uh, merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and all the best for the new year to everybody.
0: Indeed. May, May 2023 be happy, healthy, and prosperous for all. Thanks very much again. Uh, And see you guys next year.